Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I'm your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 14th episode is Daniel A. Johnston, Esquire, an attorney specializing in criminal defense, personal injury, and business and consumer litigation. Dan's motto is, call me when you're arrested, injured, or ripped off. Dan was a guest on our show for the fourth episode and is back by popular demand. If you missed that fourth episode, please be sure to go back to check it out. Dan is a former prosecutor in the Nassau County District Attorney's Office who has also handled civil litigation defense matters in large New York City firms. Dan's practice focuses on helping individuals and small businesses when it matters most, mainly criminal defense and plaintiff side civil litigation. Please check out the show notes for a full description of Dan Johnston's credentials and contact information. Please also keep in mind that we will not be providing any legal advice to specific questions. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Zahava. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, this is a pleasure. So we have a lot of interesting and important topics to discuss today. Let's dive right in. We're going to start with a common issue which litigation attorneys face, namely complaints against judges before whom they appear frequently. In one such case, Christina Huser, a former Glen Cove deputy city attorney, has filed a complaint against city court judge Richard McCord, alleging that the judge retaliated against her when she would not sign the judge's re-election petition. She claims that she was pressured to sign the petition by his campaign manager while they were all in court and while the judge was sitting on the bench less than 10 feet away. The judge called her stupid and said that it would affect her career if she did not sign the petition, according to her complaint. Ms. Huser did not sign the petition and was marginalized by the judge and staff. She was terminated from her position as teen court coordinator. Her hours were cut in half, and she was rudely addressed in court, also according to her complaint. Here we have an instance of political pressure, poor work ethic. And do you find this as well, uh, Dan, in your private practice, any issues with judges? Everybody has issues with certain judges. It's um, just a fact of practice. You're you're not going to get along completely with everyone you work with, but there is an issue that arises when it goes beyond a personality conflict, and there's potentially some unethical rationale behind marginalizing certain attorneys beyond just, I don't like them. This is early sledding for this case that we're discussing here now, and some of what she alleges aren't as atrocious in practice as as what it sounds like. Part of her complaint was that the judge would refer to her as city. So instead of saying her name, they would ask for the defense's position and then say, city, do you wish to be heard? Let let me ask you a question, Dan. Does that mean that attorneys need to turn a blind eye to what they feel is perceived poor treatment? Meaning, is this a subjective test or an objective test? This is definitely a subjective test because you're not only dealing with what a specific judge is doing in that moment, you're dealing with what the attorney, in their own opinion, perceives to be negative treatment. What I was just saying, and it applies to other contexts as well, is if the judge is referring to an attorney as city, that's not necessarily an offensive thing. When I was at the DA's office, it's very frequent that the judges refer to you as the people or government. Do you wish to be heard? It's not necessarily a negative thing. It's 
it's difficult to raise this issue if you do feel that you've been the subject of unfair negative treatment from a judge because of the fact that in a lot of these cases, I mean, in Glen Cove, you're only dealing with two judges, and Judge McCord is, you know, the big judge there. So he, he's going to be on most cases, and if you're frequently appearing before him, even if you do have a legitimate gripe, you're really in a bad spot to file a complaint unless you are, in fact, ready to you know, have your ability to represent your clients drop off in that courthouse. It would appear to me that the only reason this woman felt comfortable coming forward is because she was opening up a private practice and moving into another area and she would no longer be in front of that judge. And only now does she feel a comfort level to present her complaints about him. And it's pretty reflective of if you're in any courthouse where you're in front of the same judges time and time again, you really do just have to give the judges a free pass to do whatever they want. Because if you raise a complaint and you're wrong or you're unsuccessful, you're going to be blackballed in terms of your treatment in that courtroom. I agree with you totally in terms of the practical consequences of speaking out. However, doesn't that then lead to a sense of entitlement or abuse by the judge who feels that he or she can get away with whatever is necessary? Because as you said, there are only one or two judges sitting in that court and you are stuck with that judge. Does that lead to an environment where they feel they're entitled to do whatever they want? Yes. Okay. And one other question, does that also lead to the presumption that an attorney's relationship with the judge is very important in terms of calculating the consequence to the client? Meaning if a client is looking to get a good outcome before a certain judge, doesn't it behoove that client to find an attorney who has a good relationship with that judge? Without a doubt. Okay, so do you see any pressure whether to attend dinners or election events on behalf of judges or to play golf with the judge outside of court hours? Is there any pressure on litigators to do that? I think it depends on the courthouse and the judge. I haven't personally felt that pressure to, I mean, it's one thing to let bygones be, be bygones if you're in the court and you don't necessarily agree with a decision or an action the judge has taken. You know, it's in your best interest to just kind of let it go. But I haven't personally felt pressure to go beyond that. It hasn't negatively affected me to not, I, I stay completely out of it. I don't contribute to anyone's campaign. I just try to stay neutral to avoid any appearance of favoritism or impropriety. But I have not felt any pressure to go to, you know, election dinners or to contribute to campaigns or to play golf with them outside, although I would love to play some golf. <laughs> if any judge wants to play golf with me, it's an open invitation. That's very good. I want to ask one other question because uh, you're a criminal defense attorney, formerly a prosecutor. Uh, so you've seen both sides of the aisle. And I am a former legal aid lawyer, criminal defense division. Did you see prosecutors and defense attorneys or now in your private practice? Do you do you hang out ever with prosecutors? Do you ever see interaction between the two sides? Yeah, it's interesting because when I was in the district attorney's office, some of the older prosecutors would tell me about how they used to be fairly buddy-buddy with legal aid specifically, and they would go out. When I was in the prosecutor's office, at least at the district court level, it was much more antagonistic. I think it may just be because we're in a situation now where the points of view are so polarized as to the criminal justice system that most of the legal aid attorneys did not like the prosecutors. And vice versa was, was to a degree true as well. There were certain legal aid attorneys that I would get along with just fine and others that maybe I didn't. 
but for the most part, no, you weren't having like district attorney legal aid mixers or anything like that. The friendships were on a person to person basis, not so much. We're all practicing together all the time. Let's hang out. That never really happened. That's interesting because 30 years ago when I was a legal aid lawyer in um, both in Queens and Manhattan, I was very friendly with the prosecutors. And I think you're right. It was a different style of practice. Not so much that we helped each other on cases. When we, when we met, we didn't talk about cases. But on a personal level, we respected the work that each did and the side that they took. And I think that led to actually a better working relationship because we were able to move cases along better and a sense of trust between the attorneys. I think you're right. And I think that is a major factor is that there's no longer that level of respect for the other person's position. Both sides, in most cases, feel the other side is being unreasonable. And it does lead to, on a general level, a distrust of, of each other's side. So that brings us into our next topic, which involves the plea deal and sentencing of a 19-year-old white man from Lindenhurst by the name of David O'Brien to four to 12 years in prison after driving high on drugs and killing two people. To reiterate, this case did not go to trial. The defendant admitted and pled guilty to the charge. So Dan, do you think that sentence was fair? I think that it's appropriate. Whether or not it's fair depends on who you are. If you're a family member of this young man who's going to jail, you probably feel it's overly harsh. And if you're a family member of one of the children that was killed, you probably feel he's getting a slap on the wrist. But it's an appropriate sentence under the circumstances. You have a young man who's 19 years old who just prior to getting behind the wheel made jokes on social media about driving high and then in fact drove high and as a result two young people are dead. 4 to 12 Probably 12 seems a little better to me, but yeah, this is someone who made light of the consequences of their actions, and then the consequences of their actions are that two young people are dead. I see absolutely no problem with him going to prison for a significant amount of time. It doesn't smack foul to me. Okay, I have a question, though, and to play devil's advocate, here's a 19-year-old man, somewhat immature, I would presume, based on his social uh, media activity and, and his statements, his life is forever changed as a result of his poor decision making. Do you think that there would have been room in this decision or maybe in the sentencing to take into consideration his young age? Or do you feel that maybe that was one of the factors that led to the, uh, the sentencing? I can understand your point about him being young and fairly immature and that factoring into his decision making. But I think the subjective analysis of looking at a particular defendant and determining whether their age had something to do with it, their maturity level had something to do with it, I think that entire train stops when people are dead. And especially when the people who are dead are two also young people, including a minor. To me, that's that's a line in the sand. If we were talking about him being 19 and it was a single car, no one killed accident, and he just wrapped his own car around a phone pole, sure, let's discuss, okay, he's a young man, he's immature, let's get him into a program to get him to up to speed as to the consequences of his actions. The purpose of the criminal justice system is not only rehabilitative, there, there, is, a, there is a punishment and a justice aspect to be considered. And the fact is two young people are dead. 
he is at fault. If we just turned around and gave this young man some type of education as opposed to a prison sentence, I think that would undermine confidence in the criminal justice system, especially for the families of those affected. Okay. And we have previously talked about issues in Suffolk County. This case was in Lindenhurst. Talked about Keith Bush and Suffolk County's race bias against African Americans. Do you think that this defendant's race, age, or gender played any role here? It's hard to say. This is a fairly significant sentence of four to 12 years. And it's also the fact it was a plea deal. This is as opposed to in most of these cases where we're dealing with wrongful convictions, you're not dealing with a plea deal. You're dealing with a case that went to trial, found guilty, evidence presented, and then there's a sentence. Well, he probably pled because his attorney told him you'll get a better deal if you plead. And he probably had a poor defense. Isn't that fair to say? That is pretty fair to say. I would say the facts were also pretty stacked against him in this case. So given that the prosecutor essentially had him by the throat, I don't see this as being too different if he happens to be a different age, a different race, a different gender. I think no matter who you are, under these facts, you're going to get hit. Bad facts, bad results, bad consequences. I think just about anybody here takes a 4 to 12 deal and recognizes that at trial you're looking at significantly more if convicted and you're almost certainly going to be convicted. So this is a case where I don't necessarily believe race, gender, age played too much of a role. Okay, thanks. I want to bring in the case of ex-Mets second baseman and current Long Island Ducks manager Wally Bachman, who was arrested on August 30th in the morning for harassment and criminal mischief involving an alleged battery of his girlfriend. Bachman was arraigned that morning and released. He was then present in uniform that same night after his arrest at a Ducks game. According to a Newsday report, Backman had a previous arrest history for harassment, battery, and DUI. Dan, do you think given this history, another defendant would have been released from jail that morning? I think it depends on more where you are than anything else. This is in the city. Most of the time, they're not going to be setting high bail or bail at all for most circumstances where you're dealing with a domestic relationship, if you're out in Nassau, you're out in Suffolk, you're much more likely to have bail set. But I do think that it is an important distinction that someone who is of means and has a history of similar offenses manages to walk out with no bail versus if you had someone who was just, you know, Joe Schmo off the street you're probably going to be dealing with at least an order of protection being put into place, if not some nominal amount of bail being set. I don't know the specific facts of this case. However, I I would take it into account that if there is previous allegations, especially between the same couple, it's really hard to make an assertion as to the fairness of his bail status when I don't have the background facts of his relationship with this person. But let me ask you, what does it matter? Why is it that domestic violence is not seen as as serious a crime as other felonies? Granted, he might have been uh, charged with a misdemeanor. We're not aware of the specific charges. But my point is, it just seems that violence against partners, against women, is taken less seriously in the judicial system. I would completely disagree with that assertion. I think it's taken... Not to say over seriously, because it is a very serious issue. But the fact of the matter is, you've got plenty of circumstances where the facts are not quite as atrocious as the officers are trying to make them out to be. And especially when you're in a place such as Nassau, their policy is if there's ever a domestic violence issue that's raised, if they are called to the scene, they're making an arrest. 
no questions about it. They're not going to issue or they're not going to use their discretion and determine whether a crime was committed. If they are called to the scene for a domestic violence related issue or accusation, they're making an arrest, period. Our next topic involves the investigation by the Nassau County District Attorney and U.S. Attorney's offices into termination payments made to five employees of the Nassau County Industrial Development Agency, the IDA, even though all five were still working there. The termination paychecks were issued three days after Laura Curran, a Democrat, was sworn into office. There's a further twist here. The investigation comes as a result of an audit by County Comptroller Jack Schneerman, who himself is the subject of a state audit due to alleged overpayment by city of Long Beach, where Schnurman previously served as city manager before Nassau County Executive Curran named him to his current position. It seems that everywhere we turn in Nassau County, there's corruption. How do you see this ending, Dan? Hopefully with an audit of the entire county government by the Department of Justice. Why is it that we see corruption in so many departments? Is this an issue of party? Is it an issue just of entitlement? What do you think? It's an issue of precedent. It's just been the, I mean, it's, it's, the worst kept secret in Nassau County that everybody is on the take. And it's been that way for years and years. And up until recently, there's really been no consequence to it. So it's just business as usual in Nassau County. So now that we actually have some investigation, I mean, all of this garden variety corruption that used to just be business as usual will hopefully start being prosecuted. And hopefully there'll be a a stop put to it. Do we see a difference in the quality of the audit or the investigation by the state as opposed to Nassau County? Meaning, can we trust a Nassau County investigation to be unbiased and impartial? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I believe that you need to have the state, if not the federal government, taking a look. Otherwise, you're just having, you know, golf buddies investigate each other. All right, well, let's talk about red light camera situation. In Nassau County, we're locked into a red light camera penalty legislation until 2024. Suffolk County yesterday, which was September 4th, 2019, yesterday voted to extend their law. It's certainly a cash cow, bringing in at least $30 million a year. However, does this law fulfill its mandate to make intersections safer and reduce rear end accidents or is it just there to bring money into the county? There's a couple issues to unpack there. One thing I will give credit to the red light cameras is that there was at least some research done on Nassau County red light cameras in the last two years that showed that where red light cameras were installed, there was a 100% reduction in the amount of fatal car accidents at that intersection. Granted, I don't know the data that existed before that, so it could just be that there was a single fatal car crash beforehand and now there's zero and then, hey, guess what? You have a 100% reduction. This is the problem with using statistics for debates like this because whoever is putting forth their position on it is going to use statistics that skew in their favor. So you have on one hand the people who are supporting the red light cameras saying there's been a 100% reduction in fatal car accidents at those intersections versus people who are against red light cameras saying that the amount of rear end collisions at those intersections has actually gone up by 10% since the installation of the red light cameras. So wait, let, let's let's separate the subject into rear end as opposed to accidents caused by drivers hitting pedestrians. So what do we know in terms of efficacy of these red light cameras in terms of rear end 
accidents. Red light cameras cause more rear end collisions, period, because people are more apt to hit their brakes and slam on their brakes if they've got a questionable yellow light than if they know that there's not a red light camera at that intersection. It is what it is. Personally, I believe red light cameras are unconstitutional, so I don't believe they should be being allowed, and that's part of why they've gotten specific statutes to impose civil fines for red light cameras. Wait, wait, I'm going to stop you there. Why do you think that they're unconstitutional? Because it's the only violation that you can be charged a fine for where you are deprived of the right to face your accuser. Is it a civil penalty or a criminal penalty? Here's the issue is it is a penalty, but they've purposely made it so that there's no points attached to it versus if you were to conduct the same conduct in front of a police officer who writes a ticket to you for disobeying a traffic control device, you would actually be facing points. The reason that they've done this is strategic. It's so that no one does climb up the chain uh, to attack the constitutionality of it because they're aware that it's on thin ice as a constitutional basis. Once you, you are assessing a fine against somebody, there's a liberty interest at stake. And that's where the right to face your accuser is triggered. Now, what they've done is they've made the stakes so low that it's so much more of a hassle to fight it that people just ma- just give up. They just say, fine, here's your $150, leave me alone. Wait, how, how can you fight a red light ticket? Don't they take pictures of you as you go through the intersection? And that becomes the issue of who is running these red light cameras, who is taking these pictures, and who's verifying the authenticity of these pictures. Oh, so you're saying that the, the pictures themselves may be doctored or that the equipment which is photographing you as you go through the intersection is inaccurate? I'm not saying that they're doctored or that they're inaccurate. What I'm saying is that you are supposed to have the right to ask someone a question about those things. You're supposed to be able to cross-examine your accuser. Now, if your only accuser is a video or a picture, that's not constitutionally sufficient. You're supposed to be able to have someone take the stand and uphold their version of facts that make it so that you're guilty. So wait, now I'm going to ask you, and, and I started the podcast by saying we are not giving any legal advice, so I'm not asking you, Dan, for legal advice. However, in general, if I were to go through a red light and there is a picture taken and I want to fight it, how would I do so? You wouldn't. If you wanted to fight it, you can get a hearing date, depending on where it's returnable. Most of the time, if you're in Nassau, you're going to Cooper Street, or if it's Suffolk County, you're going to the Traffic and Parking Violation Bureau. But you're saying there's no way I'm going to win. No, you're not going to win. Most of those courts, you could prove that you were innocent by a mile, and it's just going to be you're still guilty because it's administrative law judges. It's not sworn in elected judges. You're dealing with administrative law judges who most of the time are dealing with the same officers and the same lawyers 99 out of 100 days of the year and that's another reason why you want to choose in uh, those courts an attorney who is well known and is experienced like you for example because you know how to work the system so my i guess my question is then are you saying there's no hope if i go through a red light and they take a picture of me i should just send in my check Most of the time, yes, you should just send in your check. You're wasting your time and your money by fighting it. Is there an additional penalty if I fight it? No. There's not an additional penalty if you fight it, but the fact is you go to court and you say, it depends on what it is. There are some circumstances where it's worth fighting. If they're giving you a red light ticket because you made a right on red and when you review the tape and it shows that you did in fact fully stop and there was no sign that said no right on red and that you fully stopped prior to making the turn, sure, go fight it, and, you know, hopefully they'll do the right thing. But in 99% of the time, there's really no, you're wasting your time and your money by fighting it.
Okay, well, thank you for your honesty. And while we're talking about red light uh, issues, a measure signed into law August 6th by Governor Andrew Cuomo allows school districts to install cameras to catch drivers who illegally pass buses which have red stoplights flashing. In fact, when a bus has red stoplights flashing, drivers on both sides of the road are supposed to stop. Drivers can be fined between $250 and $400 with a possible jail sentence of up to 30 days for a first conviction for illegally passing a stop bus. And conviction also carries a mandatory five points on your license. What do you think of this, Dan? I think that five points is pretty severe for this. That being said, you are dealing with a circumstance where you have children around and they're going to, you don't know how old these children are. This is the point in time when they would be crossing the street to catch the bus or they're getting off the bus. I don't hate it. I mean, it's the same amount of points as a cell phone ticket. And this seems particularly culpable. I mean, you blow a stop sign at a corner where there isn't anybody around you get two or three points fine now you're talking about upping it to five points because there's a very good possibility if not certainty that children are present I don't mind it I mean it's not that bad and the other thing is it shouldn't read the maximum potential penalty for a first-time offense is something that's going to be happening in every case. So that's when you need an attorney on your side to help you negotiate a better outcome. If you have, if you're facing five points on your license, you should absolutely be in touch with an attorney. Once you cross six points, and and in most of these cases, you're not dealing with one ticket, the cops are going to give you multiple. So it's not just going to be that you failed to stop under this statute. It's also going to be that you were going five miles over or that you had your cell phone in your lap or that you failed to yield to another vehicle. They're going to give you two or three tickets. I want to ask you a question about that. Sometimes my cell phone is in my lap, but I'm not looking at it. Is that a violation? No, but... The fact is, if you get pulled over and your cell phone is in your lap, there's going to be an assumption. Oh, I see. Okay, so that's one thing I have to stop doing. Thanks for telling me. But once once you're over six points on your license, then you're looking at getting hit with a driver assessment fee every year and having to pay more money. Your insurance rates are going to go up. Anytime you're approaching that six-point mark, you're going to want to be in touch with an attorney to try and get those points reduced, if not eliminated. And usually the maximum here they're saying that you can get up to 30 days in jail for for violating this law i'd be willing to bet money that not a single person in the state is going to be going to jail on a first offense for a traffic infraction it's still a very serious thing five points is nothing to laugh at once you get to over 11 points your license is suspended so i mean you're halfway Mm -hmm. there just as a result of this ticket You should be speaking to an attorney. Okay, thanks, Dan. One last issue I want to talk about, which is something we talked about on the last podcast when you were present, is a new proposal sponsored by Senate Minority Leader John Flanagan, Republican of East Northport, and Assemblyman Anthony Palumbo, uh, Republican from New Suffolk, which basically provides that New York State would not be able to fire a Department of Motor Vehicles employee who refused to process an application by an undocumented immigrant, illegal or otherwise, at the Department of Motor Vehicles. That employee also would be able to hire an attorney to defend himself or herself if the state tries to take any civil action against the worker. It looks like here employees would be empowered not to fulfill state law, which is to grant 
undocumented persons a license. What do you think of that, Dan? I think the way you just assessed it is 100% correct. This law would provide frontline workers the ability to determine whether or not they agree with statewide policy that's been voted on and approved by the state legislature. This This bill has no chance of passing. This is just clearly pandering by these two assemblymen to try and get some votes out of a bill that's never going to pass. It sets awful precedent. If you pass this bill, then the next time you have some type of legislation that's not necessarily popular, are you going to pass a law that says, okay, well, we don't agree with this law. That is law. So we're going to prevent there from being any consequences if prosecutors choose not to prosecute that law. It sets awful precedent where you're taking what is supposed to be big picture policy decisions and giving the frontline workers the ability to say, well, I don't agree with it, so I'm not going to follow it. That's not the way law works. Dan, is there anything else you want to add? Just that if you've been charged with a crime or you're facing points on your license, it's important that you do speak with an attorney as soon as possible who knows what they're doing, which I do like to think that I do. So my number is 516-388-7611. I'm happy to speak with you. I offer free consultations. And if you'd like to discuss anything that we've talked about today, I'd be happy to chat with you. Okay, Dan, thanks. And if anyone's interested in contacting Dan, in addition to his phone number, all of his contact information is in our show notes. So that's it today for our 14th episode. Thank you, Dan, uh, for coming on our podcast today. I look forward to having you back again to talk about more issues. And to our listeners, please be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, we would greatly appreciate your rating us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LA Law Podcast that a federal judge has dismissed Governor Cuomo's lawsuit concerning commercial fluke fishing quotas in New York waters. Fluke is similar to the flounder fish, and this is affecting Suffolk County East End fishermen. As a result, Representative Lee Zeldin, Republican of Shirley, has advised New York commercial fishermen to refuse to comply with the federal quota system and exceed the fluke restrictions of 7.6%, as opposed to 27.4% of the quota received by North Carolina. This seems unfair to New York. Where else would you hear about fluke fishing quotas than the Long Island podcast. The LI Law Podcast is your source for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.